He paid for other families and uh, they told us yes because he uh, gave us money we will vote for him not because they believe in him just because they need the money actually we need the money but we don't sell our uh, honesty and our uh, integrity. yes integrity and uh, Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg in New York. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. Today is Monday, June 8th. Coming up, we have a puzzle for you. Why do Hummers make economic sense? Why, oh, why, oh, why? GM, as we know, is in bankruptcy. President Obama is pushing for GM to make smaller cars. But it turns out there is a good reason GM liked making trucks and SUVs and things like the Hummer. It had much larger profit margins with those vehicles. First, our Planet Money indicator, it's $1,000. That's a price. It is the amount it costs to buy a vote in yesterday's election in Lebanon. You're not allowed to buy votes. It's true, but apparently you can buy someone airplane tickets who then goes and votes. There's a law, we are told, in Lebanon which allows political parties to pay people's transportation to the polls. But it doesn't say what kind of transportation. And this election was so tight that the parties were in some cases willing to fly people back from abroad to vote. And you can imagine in that case there would be a pretty strong incentive to vote for the party that was uh, very kindly buying you that ticket. So we're also told you can actually just buy a vote outright for cash in Lebanon. Um, that is what the Lebanese woman at the top of the podcast was actually talking about. So what are the economics of vote buying? Like, how do you decide how much a vote costs? So our our colleague Adam Davidson talked to Ben Gilbert about that. Ben is in Lebanon. And he's deputy editor of a business magazine there called Executive. And Ben wrote about the airplane tickets for vote exchange. But he says when he first heard these stories, he was not sure they were true. So he sent out a bunch of emails to all his Lebanese friends and acquaintances. A friend of mine came back and said, I know I have this friend who lives in London, and um, and she's being flown back by a political party. So I wrote her back and said, well, here's my list of questions. Please, if I could call her, that would be great. And so she writes back and says, well, actually, it's me. And this is um, someone who's at a very, very, very good school in London. Uh, she's in her mid-20s. She's going for a master's degree. She's, she's Lebanese. And I was very surprised that someone um, of that caliber would be accepting a ticket by a political party. Now, let me take a step back here. There are three kinds of Lebanese voter right now. The selection is very tight. You've got a U.S.-backed um, coalition called March 14th, and they're running against a coalition that includes uh, Hezbollah, which is obviously an ally of, of Syria and Iran. So, so there are these kind of vast ideological um, gulfs between these two sides. So you have Lebanese in Lebanon who are loyal to a particular party, and they are going to vote for them no matter what. Um, then you have another voter, which is the loyal voters outside Lebanon, because there are probably more than a million Lebanese expats who are outside Lebanon, expatriates who are outside Lebanon, uh, living, working in the U.S. and Dubai and Saudi Arabia and Australia, all around the world. And then you've got the third group, which is, <laughs> which is Lebanese who are inside and outside who are undecided. And that's where we come back to the swing voter, the Christians, because the Christians are going to be the, swing, are the, are the, the, the focus of that swing vote. Got so. you. So, so if I said, hey, I'm a committed Shiite Muslim and I would like you to pay for my flight home, 
No, nobody's really caring about me or I want you to give me a lot of money. No, no one cares about me because I'm probably going to vote in a district that's going to be overwhelmingly um, for the March 8th alliance, the, the pro-Syria, pro-Iran pro one. And if I'm secular Sunni Muslim saying, hey, I want you to play, pay for my trip, no one's, no one's going to care about me because I'm almost certainly from a district that's going to go strongly uh, for, for the pro-American March 14th alliance. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like being a Democrat. If there were votes up for sale in the U.S., it'd be like saying, I'm a Democrat from Minnesota, um, pay for my flight home, and no one's going to pay you, right? We all right. know Minnesota's going to go with the Democrat, with the Democratic Party, right? Right. But if example? you're a Democrat right. from Pennsylvania... Or that, Ohio. Or Ohio. That's precisely. Yeah. Okay. Your, your vote is worth more. Right. So that's the sliding scale of, of vote-buying economics, right? Right. So, so these voters, um, so, so people are being approached. Well, there's, and then with the Lebanese electoral law, it gets complicated because with the overseas voters bringing, bringing people back, it's not illegal to pay for transportation. So, now, I'm assuming that was originally written with the idea being like, if poor people need a bus fare to, to, to get exactly. to the polls. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, and that's the difference is that you can, right, there's no stipulation on how much transportation can cost. It can be a $2,000 ticket from San Francisco, or it can be a, uh, a $2 bus ride um, to, the local, uh, to the local polling station. So that's where the uh, the political parties are getting away with with some of that. Now, now if you pay some, if you the difference between that and there is a stipulation in the law that you cannot put a a condition on someone returning that they have to vote in order to get the ticket. So technically, um, a lot of these political parties are violating the law if they ask you. Um, if you if you know who you're voting for, if they say, "Well, here's your ticket," you remember you have to vote for so and so candidate X, uh, and that's the point where they're where they're passing the line. But no one's monitoring this. I mean, there's going to be no. It's, it's going to be very difficult for them to uh, to track down all these people. Um, so but, that's actually so basically legal right. vote buying, but but it's it's really legal transportation subsidization, I guess. Right. Well, that's what they say. That's what they say. Although when you're flying from London or, or Dubai or San Francisco, it's that's an awful lot of transportation. And is it is one vote worth $2,000 to a party? At this point, it seems like it is. I mean, not only are they paying for um, Lebanese expatriates to come back, they're paying their expenses when they get back. You know, oh, well, here's here's your plane ticket and here's a $500 that uh, envelope of five hundred dollars, and it's been you know go out, have a good time, enjoy the town. So there's that little ad- added incentive for quote unquote undecided voters. I, I'm still struggling with the idea that one vote, leaving aside for a second the morality and the you know how how awful it is to think that votes are being bought, but. Just the economics of it is confusing to me. I mean, I I don't feel like I fully understand why it makes sense to spend thousands of dollars for one vote over and over and over again. But what you're saying is it's not every vote. It's some votes in some areas. So clearly they've budgeted a few hundred grand or whatever it is for this. And, um, And I guess it's a bit of an arms race, right? If... If one side 
starts doing it, the other side sort of feels like they have to start doing it. Yes, exactly. I think that's um, there. There is definitely an, an arms or a, a vote buying race going on right now, and um, and I think that they just keep both sides keep upping the ante at this point, um, and it's just about turnout at this point. I mean, basically, you know, you've got an election that is the first independent election in Lebanon's recent history since the Civil War began in 1975 without the Syrians, um, without it being influenced by a law that was basically cooked up in Damascus because Syria occupied Lebanon for, for almost 30 years. So, I mean, this is going to be a decisive election. You know, a lot of um, actually former Bush administration officials have, have posited this. If, if, if March 14th loses, this is a major defeat for, for American policy in the Middle East. So, I mean, not only is, is it a Lebanese race, but it's also seen as an, as an international or at least regional showdown, kind of a popularity contest between uh, the Iranian and kind of Syrian-backed opposition, March 8th, um, against the March 14th. Um, coalition. Is it reasonable to assume that maybe the Americans and the Iranians are, are subsidizing this vote buying? Well, there's there's uh, the Americans, the Saudis, the Qataris, the I mean, you name it, and everyone on each side is accusing the other one of taking money from a foreign power, which is um, not uncommon in Lebanon. Um, who knows how much money is coming in? Um, I mean, the U.S. is kind of openly <laughs> threatening to withdraw its its aid, which uh, for proposed budget next year would be $200 million. So, I mean, you know, they're not necessarily overtly, as far as we know, supplying money for this election, but, but there are kind of threats of withdrawing money, at least. Um, but as, as far as I can tell from people that I've talked to, Adam, it seems like a vote, a vote in Lebanon seems to be worth about $1,000 now on the ground, someone coming to your house. I just spoke with a woman uh, this past week who had a politician call her on the phone and say, I'd like to change your, your beliefs. I'd like to change your ideas. I'd like you to vote for me. And, you know, last year I was able to hook up your neighbors with $5,000 for a five-member family, and I helped to rebuild. I gave money to help rebuild the church down the street. And so, you know, what, what do I have to do to make you guys like me? So, um, so and, and, and this was coming straight out of her mouth. She's a supporter of, of the other side. Um, of uh, of March eighth, but she 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 said you know it was, it was about a thousand dollars, and that's what I've heard from other people in those Christian districts that are going to be the swing vote. Wow, and and clearly some maybe a little bit more for, to get the people in from out of town. Right. Wow. But I mean, but, but you've got you know, I mean, on one side you've got um, Hezbollah, and they. Um, Hezbollah doesn't really have open books. They're not the most transparent organization in the world. So, I mean, they've got lots of weapons in the South that they brag about all the time. And I would imagine, um, you know, however they get those weapons, there's also a nice pool of money for for um, for helping out their their allies uh, to to with with a little campaign spending. And if that involves uh, vote buying, then then so be it. And on the other side, on the March 14th side, you have uh, you've got Saudi Arabia. And you have the Hariri family, which is one of the richest families in the world. Um, so you've got a lot of money flying around here. So there's, there's a question here, which is, if you buy the vote, how do you know that you actually got the vote you bought? How do you, how do you know if I spent $1,000 um, paying you to come to Lebanon that you actually voted the way I wanted you to vote? Well, the answer, says Ben Gilbert, is that 
you have a special ballot um, that I've given you basically when I give you the thousand dollars to come to come to Lebanon. These um, it, Lebanon has this system where voters can bring in a pre-marked piece of paper with their vote on it already filled in. And in this case, these are these are generally pink or red pieces of paper. So when the votes get counted. The parties that tried to buy the votes can get some sense of whether people in a particular district followed through the way they were supposed to. Because the people from the parties can actually go and watch the vote counting and, and they, they know, OK, we paid for 50 plane tickets, but we only got 30 pink ballots. So they'd say, OK, we know we paid for 50 votes. We got 30. That's maybe not too bad. The Lebanese government, by the way, released the results of the election today. It was a victory for the coalition that the United States had been backing, which now controls a majority of the seats in parliament. Okay, so one puzzle cleared up. How much does it cost to buy a vote in Lebanon? On to our next economic puzzle. As we mentioned, we've been following the General Motors bankruptcy, and there's this tension between the Obama administration, which wants GM to build smaller, more fuel-efficient cars, and General Motors, which makes a bigger profit off its big trucks and SUVs and, of course, the Hummer. The Humvee. We noticed people out there kicking around the question of why auto companies clear more money on bigger vehicles, why they depend so much on that kind of sale. So we turned to one of our favorite narrative economists, Robert Frank. He's the author of The Economic Naturalist. He teaches at Cornell. And he specializes in just this kind of exercise, taking a circumstance in the world and using economics to understand it. So he steered Adam Davidson and Laura Conaway through the puzzle of why Hummers have been so good for GM. Basically, companies have a lot of costs that don't go with any particular unit. They have to set up the assembly lines. They have to do all the research and development. They've got to cover those costs somehow. The actual extra costs of making each vehicle are are small compared to the total costs. Uh, They can't charge every buyer just the extra costs of making the vehicle or all those other overhead costs would never get covered. So where do they cover those? Well, they cover them wherever they can, and it turns out that whoever's willing to pay a slightly higher price for the the product is the one who ends up paying the lion's share of those costs. So why is it in the car industry that the big vehicles carry more of that load? It's it's because the bigger the vehicle is, the fewer there are like it. Uh, the the big trucks, there, there are many fewer choices in the market for trucks than there would be in the market for small cars where they're competing against virtually every producer in the world. And so the fact that there's a little less competition in the truck segment means they're going to try to recover more of their overhead costs from that segment. So when I look at small cars that roll out from Chrysler or GM, it seems like there's a new one coming around the block every minute. Yeah, and those cars are priced much closer to the actual extra cost of producing one. But the Hummer's the Hummer. I mean, that's a giant one-off thing. The Hummer typically is a much more high-margin item. Now they're going to get rid of the Hummer. You might say, well, why are they going to get rid of the Hummer if that's their high-margin item? One might ask this question. Whoever buys the Hummer knows that, and so the price they'll get when they sell the Hummer division will be higher accordingly because of that. But if if there's so much more market share in the bigger trucks, um, wouldn't that just invite lots of other companies? competitors to create new trucks in that market to I mean the, the the whole idea of of competition is that if there's a high margin area there's more competition and they keep competing on price and then you get down to the marginal cost of producing each car that's the profit you're allowed to make yeah they're not all the same though uh, you see this in computers too the 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 computer with the faster chip sells for a lot more than the computer with the slower chip. So you, you could Even say... Even if well, it's slightly slower. 
and and the cost of the different chips is very small. The difference in cost between the fast chip and the slow one. Uh, there have even been examples where to get the slow chip, they first make the fast chip and then disable part of it. Uh, the the slow chip sells at a big discount, and it's just because the people who really care, who don't, who want the the product features and aren't that sensitive to price, are willing to pay more. And so, the the people who have a, a little bit uh, of market power in a segment have to exploit that to to try and cover their overhead costs. They charge those buyers more. Uh, no one can really offer the fast chip Apple machine besides Apple. So if Apple wants to cover its research and development costs, those are the buyers that it goes after. Is there an echo effect there too, Bob, where if I go to the lot and I'm going to buy a Hummer, they know that, I, that I'm there to lay out a good chunk of money and they can more easily hide in there a few extra hundred bucks to cover stationary or development or whatever had to happen. Yeah, if you're a Hummer buyer in the first place, you're not looking for the cheapest vehicle on the lot. So that tells them that you're not sort of the marginal income player in the in the car buyer population. So yeah, you're a more attractive candidate to try and squeeze some extra margin out of on that account too. So Alex, what is that crazy drink you buy at Starbucks that's kind of embarrassing to order? <laughs> the uh, the iced iced trippio. <laughs> I think that's the same thing, right? You're basically buying the Starbucks Hummer. That is so unfair. You know how hard it is to make one of those things. There's labor, there's skilled labor. <laughs> those bar- those baristas are, are are very well trained. It's, it's expensive. All right, maybe maybe that's it. Um, we have one final sidebar to the news. Remember that podcast where we reenacted the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme? I remember it well because I made a lot of money. You played Madoff. I invested with you, and I got paid handsomely. I was I was actually paying you with Adam's money that he had invested in. <laughs> right, I know. I like that part too. Right. Well, the the point of our little radio drama was that the news stories were calling it a fifty billion dollar Ponzi scheme, now a sixty five billion dollar Ponzi scheme. But when you act it out like we did on the podcast, you see that actually that number is a total fiction. It's just the total of what Madoff said people had in their accounts. If you add up the number at the bottom of the last statement he he sent to everybody. Right, which of course were were complete lies. It was basically the numbers. It was his made up numbers. He he pretended that he owed everybody sixty five billion dollars, and so that's what they're saying is the real number. Right. So today, I just want to point out that the substance of our little radio drama is now front and center in federal bankruptcy court. It it just popped up. I read the story today in the New York Times. Right. The people who invested with Madoff say, "Look, we are owed the amount on our statements. I'm retired. I had my life savings with Mr. Madoff. I've been planning my life around the amount of money he said I had with him, and he was going to return to me." Right. So you're saying, "Look, it's the amount of my account." But the trustees in charge of handling out whatever little money there there is left in this whole mess are saying, sorry, we can't go by that because Madoff just made those numbers up and the people he liked, he he gave larger returns to. So Irving Picard, who's the trustee who's having to do all these terrible calculations, told the New York Times that if he were to use those statements to figure out who to pay, he said that would be like allowing the thief to pick the winners and losers because Madoff had decided who had what money and who didn't. Wow. Well, I think that does it for us today. Send us your economic puzzles, things you see out there that seem strange or need explaining. We're at planetmoney at npr.org. And check out the blog where we have a graph showing the number of airline accidents during recessions. I'm not kidding you. It's there at npr.org slash money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. 